Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Let's begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, you who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. We ask you to be here now, sending down your Holy Spirit, enlightening our minds that in our studies, we might come to know you and to glorify your holy name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Great to be here. Great to see you. Great to see everybody. All right. So second week on Plato. Here's what I'd like to suggest to you. This is not intended to be a fundamentals of Platonic worldview. It's not meant to be a, a tour of all the most important things in Plato. It's intended to be a meditation on some key insights in Plato to serve us in our Christian life. My specific suggestion to you is let's right now together in the spirit of Father's prayer, ask the Holy Spirit to inspire us to open our hearts, to open our minds to how the insights available to the light of natural reason can be an inspiration to us. We ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in what particular things might we take with us. Because again, this, this lecture is not fundamentally about, okay, here are all the things you need to learn and must understand this whole thing, though I hope it does help give you a fuller picture. I'm hoping that Maybe it's just when we're going through the four cardinal virtues briefly, that just, which I never tire myself of coming back to, maybe just one of them will particularly strike you and you'll, you'll say, courage, courage. Do, do I think about this? Do I think about how to cultivate it? Do I think about why this is so important in my life? How am I promoting it? And maybe we'll just be that, that, that moment of inspiration. Maybe it's when we come to the end and we're talking briefly about contemplation, something that Plato profoundly appreciated, but he doesn't talk about it at, at length. Maybe we'll just say, ah, if he saw this, how much more should I, and what should this mean for me? So this is my goal with you here, ladies and gentlemen. We're, we're, we're turning to the insights of Plato, a truly good life insights from Plato's dialogues. Which insights here might strike us might be a point of inspiration through which might the Holy Spirit speak to us to allow us to make some new resolutions, maybe to focus our prayer 
in view of some of these simple insights. That's my hope and my prayer. So um, if you haven't already uh, printed out the handout, Peter, that's that's that, that's in there available for them, right? If you can't do that, um, that's okay. I'll be I'll be reading it. I'll read the number. I've numbered them. I will. Uh, so you could afterwards, if you want to, go back and look at that um, particular one. But I'm basically my presentation. You wouldn't have known exactly what my presentation would be just from the number of quotations, but hopefully it will come together as we're going through it. Quotation number one, what's the wisdom of the sophist? This was in the, our last week also. What is the manufacture, the craft, the art, the know-how over which he presides? Socrates asked this question in the dialogue Protagoras because he's asking why, ask yourself, would you want to go and study under the sophist? What know-how is his work that if you study with him and spend time with him, you will become more like, or you will advance in. Socrates is always interested in, as it were, what is your know-how? What is your craft? Here, here it is, ladies and gentlemen. These great philosophers, if there's one thing they saw so powerful, ever new, ever so relevant, you are human, you are rational. What does it mean to be rational? We don't really understand what it means to be rational until we're wise, because rationality is about wisdom. This is always their insight in nature. You don't really understand the thing until you see the excellence of the thing. What is, what is the specific difference? What is it that sets humans apart? What is it is the function in Platonic terminology? What's the function of man that makes us different from any other thing? Well, if you use one word, it would be rationality. But in the public, when he specifically asked that question, he also, in the, in the little list of several different kind of rational words, the one that really jumps out is to rule. Reason is very much about ruling, about directing, about, about crafting, about giving order. Ruling is to give order. Reason sees order. Reason gives order. We're always going to be having some type of craft. So everyone by, by their rationality, we're always, we're always doing some kind of making, but will we have the kind of art, the techne, that is the perfection of doing that? So you see this first, and this is in, in, in Socrates, I love to use these examples all the time, the craft, the know-how of the shepherd, the craft, the know-how of the carpenter, the craft of the know-how of the military man. There's so many different know-hows where you, you build this up. You build this up by learning from those who have it. You build this up by experience. But lo and behold, as always, the more we see, there's an order of things. There's a hierarchy of things. Things, things fit together. Not all know-hows are the same. There's a, but, but again, the wisdom viewpoint, you always see how things fit together. All know-hows have their place, all good know-hows in any case, have their place, but under a greater know-how, 
there's a greater know-how, the know-how to live a good life. This is the knowledge of how to live a truly good human life. Quotation number two, so simple to the point in the dialogue Crito. The most important thing is not life, but the good life. You, 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 could, you could see this painted on a billboard. You could see this like, you know, on the wall in the bank, you know, you're standing in line at the teller if you still go into the building and they have all these little, you know, catchy, I mean, it's amazing. And you can see very smart people are being paid a lot of money to come up with phrases that sound really cool about life. And, and so you, you could, you could almost see something like that showing up on the, on, on, you know, on, on the bank wall. But we have to read with understanding. Socrates, the most important thing is not life, but the good life. <laughs> that, 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 that word, that, that word that can be so, so dangerous, so, so misused, so innocent, good. What's a good life? This is what Socrates is always concerned to discover. And he, and he sees that there is a way of living that transcends any of the more particular know-hows. You could have the know-how being a shepherd and still not live a good life. You could have the know-how of the military man and still not live a good life. You can have the know-how of a carpenter and still not live the good life. And you certainly can have the know-how of the merchants or the businessman and not live a good life. But there's a know-how of living a good life, of pursuing the most important of human excellences. Those that then get set apart and are given the special name of excellence, of truly human excellence, which is the Greek word arete, which then we translate as virtue. So human life, the good life, is especially characterized by certain virtues, which the most important craft is the know-how of bringing about. It's that simple. The most important know-how in human life is the know-how of crafting virtuous living. Virtuous living as individuals, virtuous living as communities. But this is the hardest know-how to come upon. Indeed, even those who try to find it must struggle to do so, but for some strange reason, so often we don't tune into it. And this is what Socrates explains in the Apology. He's, he's, he's so surprised. Why is it people are spending so much time on these particular know-hows, trying to be that, that, that great soldier, and, uh, and, and the know-how that is perennially distracting not that it can't be put to good use, but again, the know-how of the merchant, the know-how of commerce that, that has such stark, big, noticeable, influential fruits. It's so easy for us to get caught up in that, such that Socrates would regularly say, good sir, you're an Athenian, but are you not ashamed that you spend so much time thinking about wealth and power, and you're not thinking about the best possible state of your soul, which is just another way 
of saying of your virtue, of seeking truth, of the most proper human good life. So our third quotation is the greatest good for a man to discuss virtue every day. I mean, a little bit of a hyperbole at the end of the day. It's not fundamentally just about the discussion. But this is this is Socrates signaling to us. It's this is the way it's going to be for us that we're going to have to spend our whole life trying to discover this craft and develop this craft to develop this know-how. And it, it, it's easy to understand why we have to both be figuring out what the virtues are anyway. And then how are we going to enact them in our little corner of the world? There's so much to try to discern. What, 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 how do I enact these virtues right here in my being a teacher, in my having a business, in my being a friend, in my being a spouse, in my being a citizen? So there's so much then that we're going to have to think about both in the kind of universal level, and then we're going to have to figure out the application. So this is why he, he encourages us by giving us this example, plan to spend your days talking about, deliberating about, both pursuing the more universal principles and discerning about then how to apply them. This, of course, as his grand student, as it were, Aristotle will spend a bit of time talking about, this is what most constitutes friendship day by day. This is what they're talking about, how they're going to help one another do this. I'm on quotation number four, we'll call him wise because of that small part of himself that rules in him and makes those declarations and has within the knowledge of what is advantageous for each part and for the whole soul. What we're doing now, ladies and gentlemen, is we're transitioning into speaking about the four cardinal virtues. So what I'm going to do here is give you just a, a, a brief tour. Some of you, it's a reminder. If you haven't seen it before, you're going to get a little bit of an exposition. This is, this is each from book four of the Republic, a, a really amazing, amazing thing, where it, quickly in context, he has built a city, and then he's looking for these four cardinal virtues in the city. And then he says, having seen them in the city, we'll try to figure out corresponding to them, what they are in the individual soul. We can, don't have time to go through in, in any more of the details of that, other than I just want to give a little, little sketch here, a little reminder for you. I mean, he's really the early great exponent, expositor of these four very much interwoven, but nonetheless distinguishable excellences that we need to craft in our life. And of course, the better we understand them, the better we'll be able to bring them about in our life. So the first is called wisdom. To be clear, in the, in the following through on something from last time, we made a distinction between practical knowledge and speculative knowledge, and thus practical wisdom and speculative wisdom. The virtue that is one of the four cardinal virtues that can also be called prudence is a practical wisdom. And as a practical wisdom, it is thus a know-how. And again, this is the highest know-how. We will again transition a little bit later to see how that is actually then caught up into distinct from, but very much interwoven with ultimately an even greater knowledge. It's not a know-how because as wonderful as all these know-hows that we're talking about are, 
knowing how is never most ultimate game. Something beyond it is going to give the importance to the know-hows, just as this higher of the know-hows gives the importance to the lower know-hows. So always remember that. This goes to something that we've talked about a little bit in a great question before, before we started here. The, the higher governs the lower. The more we understand the know-how and think in terms of the virtues, the more they won't just be kind of plastered on to the rest of our life, or the pursuit of these is kind of this thing going on over here. Somehow, that's why we have to be talking about it every day and keep them thinking and keeping them praying. Somehow, the pursuit of virtue will literally infiltrate, will leaven absolutely everything. So then we'll really be a craftsman in everything that we do. Imagine the artist or the carpenter or the soldier or the doctor the teacher, where whatever the particular craft is, it is ultimately an expression of, given power by the desire to craft a truly human good life in the more ultimate sense. I go back in quotation number four, we've started the first of the four cardinal virtues. It's called wisdom or meaning practical wisdom. And he's just, he's giving us a little window into the, into who that practically wise man is. I'm going to read the quotation again, quick, quick comment, and we'll go on to the next virtue. We'll call him wise because of that small part of himself that rules. So he's getting, he always loves to come back to ruling. Rationality needs to really rule. Something will always rule in our life. What is it? Is it an understanding of the higher things? Is it an understanding of what the truly human good life is that rules, which again always means gives order, it gives order to everything else that we do. We'll call him wise because of that small part of himself that rules in him and makes those declarations, kind of deliberations and then kind of commands about how we're going to act. And has within it, so this is reason, has within it the knowledge of what is advantageous for each part and for the whole soul. So much here, but just a brief comment. Wisdom is, is the, the universal view. It's, again, it sees how everything fits together. It understands the parts for what they are. This is what he's emphasizing. The wise view is, has the knowledge of what is advantageous for each part. Think this, each part of life, all, all the little different things, we're always having problem kind of weaving them together. How am I going to fit that in? How do, how, do I, how, how do I know how much attention to give here? Wisdom is, is seeing the hierarchy, seeing how they fit together. And by the way, if there's a part of our life that can't be properly integrated, that doesn't really fit, well, then it's not a real part or it shouldn't be a part. And the wise man will see that and he'll excise it because everything should fit. Everything should be in harmony. There shouldn't be that corner of our life where it doesn't harmonize with the other things. 
If it doesn't harmonize, then it doesn't belong. And, and wisdom is always asking that question. It understands the relative values of the different things we do. Um, medicine, working out, that has a part in life, has a place in life. What is it? If, it, if, it's, if it's not understood for what it is and what it should be, then it's going to be out of harmony. The wise man would see that. So he knows what's advantageous for each part and for the whole, because, of course, you judge the parts in terms of the whole and the flourishing of the whole. Therein is wisdom. It always sees how things fit together. Things are always better ordered by the plan of nature than we've yet realized. The plan for our life, what our life can look like when we see the order that should be in it is always better than we've realized. Wisdom sees that. I go on to courage, the second cardinal virtue that he um, discusses, and this is in quotation number five. This power to preserve through everything the correct and law-inculcated belief about what is to be feared and what isn't is what I call courage. This is an incredible line, isn't it? Let's read that again. This power to preserve through everything, the correct and law-inculcated belief about what is to be feared and what isn't, is what I call courage. Aristotle has a more refined definition of courage. But, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's, there's such wisdom in, in Socrates' view here that I don't think it's, we need to say here, well, let's just go to Aristotle and not worry about what Socrates said. It's just so, this sentence, I can just imagine Aristotle digesting and digesting and digesting, seeing this, and then he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna present it in a slightly different way. But, but the, the phrase that Socrates keeps, it's a power, a power to preserve, kind of think endure, but the, um, Aristotle and St. Thomas following him say the cardinal virtue of courage has two main actions, to endure and to attack. You need to be courageous to endure. You need to be courageous sometimes in attacking. But they told that the more fundamental is enduring. Enduring. It doesn't, doesn't life say that? There's a, there's a time to attack, but much more. There's just so much that we simply must endure, which requires courage. So the power to preserve through everything, the correct and law, law inculcated belief about what is to be feared. Okay, so here, the key, the, the key emotion, this thing that's so hard to get right in human life, that clearly has its natural place, it's natural to fear. We're supposed to fear certain things. The problem is not with fearing. The problem is in what we fear and how we fear. The cardinal virtue of courage, ultimately, um, gives right order to our fears. But note how there's a very intellectual aspect here. We have learned, we must learn through education. I'm about to give you the further quotation here. We must be formed in our education the broad sense. We need to be formed to understand the levels of things. There's nothing wrong with fearing stubbing your toe. It's not nearly as fear-worthy as certain other things. So, so to, to see the hierarchy, it's always about hierarchy. It's always about order. What should be more feared? What should be less feared? Which fears should more govern? Which fears should never govern? We need to learn that. We need to understand that. 
understanding it is primarily a matter of wisdom. The power to preserve that understanding in duress, that's courage. I give you the further quotation here. This is such a beautiful image from the Republic, so full of images about putting a good dye into a cloth. Educating someone for courage is like dyeing the cloth so that the understanding will stay in your fibers. We need to be educated. We need to be formed in such a way that the understanding of the hierarchy, the understanding of the truth, the understanding of practical wisdom about what matters and what doesn't, what should be feared and how much and when, that that go into the fibers of our being so that let the winds and the storm come as it will. Let things wash. This understanding will not be washed away from governing our actions because that's how it would be washed away. You wouldn't necessarily lose the understanding, but it's been washed away if it no longer governs our actions. Quote, what we were contriving in our education was nothing other than this, that because they had the proper nature and upbringing, they would absorb the laws in the finest possible way, just like a dye, so that their belief about what they should fear and all the rest would become so fast that even such extremely effective detergents as pleasure, pain, fear, and desire wouldn't wash it out. What does it take that we be dyed in such a way and that those under our care, we are doing all that we can to be dying them, to be helping put into their fibers, the fiber of their being, convictions about what matters. A third cardinal virtue is normally called temperance. It's called moderation here. It doesn't, it doesn't talk about it at great length. He, he, here's here's his, his, his main one-liner. Moderation is surely a kind of order. The mastery of certain kinds of pleasures and desires. What does it take to get that order into the desires. Well, education is very much a matter of that too, right? And just as we were kind of trying to get the dye the fiber so that the understanding of right and wrong, especially, would endure against fear, that fear, that thing that is, can be so determinative of how we act. Well, similarly here, this is particularly dying us so that we not be washed away by the desires and pleasures. But, but, but note, more to the point, it's a kind of order that's actually put into the pleasures, right? And Aristotle's one that really draws this out. It's, it's changing what delights us, changing what we want. Lord, help us to think and deliberate more about how to change what we want. We can't change what we want overnight, but we can act so as to be changing it. Give us the courage and the wisdom be taking, to be taking the steps that should be taken to be putting order into our desires. Again, the kind of thing that you need to talk about every day, as we had seen in number three. Go on now to our fourth and final 
cardinal virtue, the one that kind of brings, in the case, courage and temperance, brings the other moral ones together, practical wisdom, so kind of always governing everything. Justice, his main concern in the Republic, quotation number seven. And he, he, he does this in a little bit of a roundabout way. He would have nothing to do with temple robberies, thefts, betrayal of friends in private life, or of cities in public life, and adultery, disrespect for parents, neglect of the gods, would be more in keeping with every other kind of character than his. And isn't the cause of all this that every part within him does its own work, whether it's ruling or being ruled? There's Socrates on justice. What, 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 what an astounding list. Look at, look at how he's thinking here. He gives you the, what he's kind of calling the outward manifestations. Justice is such an incredibly profound thing. It has so many different outer manifestations that he tries to bring it all back. All those outer manifestations come back to something more simple and unified that is a kind of order always right in the soul. But isn't this neat? Just kind of picture the just man as, as, as painted here by Socrates. You never know which one of these things he will do and which things you can utterly trust that he would never do. We'd have nothing to do with temple robberies, thefts, betrayals of friends. How many times have we perhaps betrayed, even if somewhat unthinkingly, our own friends? Betrayal of friends is a, dare I say, a rather common part of life. We have nothing to do with this. This is the man, he's not ever going to betray his friends or the city. Adultery, disrespect for parents, neglect of the gods would be more in keeping with every other kind of character than his. Isn't the cause of all this? Every part within him does its own work, whether it's ruling or being ruled. This gives us that, that little window, something that, you know, the, 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 the phrase of justice as rendering to each is due that, that, that appears in Plato also. Socrates doesn't make that as thematic and Socrates and Plato. That becomes more central in, in Aristotle and that's very much what our tradition takes up. The roots of this are right there. The just man is the one that, that, that renders what is due. Well, that's coming from a kind of interior order. His, his, this is what he wants. He has so habitually subjected his appetites and all of his passions to right reason. He's always looking for the hierarchy and recognizing in the hierarchy of things, it's always more about people and their good than it is about things. And so he, when he is always about people, justice is always about people. Ultimately, this is, I mean, if you, if you, if you think about courage and moderation, it doesn't, it doesn't so immediately blare, you're taking care of people. Justice, you are always taking care of people because you're always rendering what's due to people. This is where it comes home to roost in the practical life. Who is a just man? He takes care of things. 
He takes care of things in the fullest sense. He takes care of people and he only cares about things because he cares about people. It's always about people for just people. What do they need? What is what do I owe to them? When they craft anything else, think about, think about it. And then that is the craft that governs everything else. Think of the doctor who first is just. What do I owe to people? Think of the soldier who first is just. What do I owe to people? Think of the carpenter who first is just. This is the mastercraft where in your soul, you are about taking care of people and rendering to them what is due to them. You are going to craft everything well in a hierarchy for the good of people. One other thing here before uh, we uh, go on to the backside here, quotation number eight. Therefore, when the entire soul follows the philosophic parts, so this is kind of just wrap up on, the, on, on having all the virtues. Therefore, when the entire soul follows the philosophical, all philosophical part means is, is reason, but reason kind of having pursued love to wisdom. So reason being perfected. The entire soul follows the philosophic part and there's no civil war in it. Each part of it does its own work exclusively and is just. And in particular, it enjoys its own pleasures, the best and truest pleasures possible for it. The, the, the classic insight conviction of Socrates, when everything's in its place, everything's flourishing. Even your, 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 your things are going to go well. When people are put first, things in, in not in the sense, not but you have to you have to judge the things the way that the wise would to see that the things are going well in life. If our standards of judgment are not in the right hierarchy, then we wouldn't see what things going well really looks like and how you're getting everything. When everything's in its place, you get everything. All right. Um Jump, skip that one in the in the in the in the block uh, there at the bottom uh, in number eight. It's a, it's a it's a beauty, but we got to roll. We've gone the four cardinal virtues. Now what we're going to do is go to our our ends of the republic, where he is expressing the conviction of how things will always go well, even in the exterior realm. Ultimately, for those who are growing in virtue and putting first things first, even if at times you know, they're persecuted and their things are taken and stolen and, and all kinds of bad things could happen. For the gods never neglect anyone who eagerly wishes to become just and who makes himself as much like a god as a human can by adopting a virtuous way of life. So become virtuous, is to become more divine. What does the light of natural reason say to those who see it? For me simply to live as I should, to live a good human life, good human means approaching the divine. I am becoming more like the divine by living with excellence, arete, the virtues, the four kind of virtues, this is more divine. And the divine will smile upon this. There's only so much for there he can say. 
and he doesn't he doesn't have divine revelation. We'll conclude in a, in a few minutes by referring to how you know, divine revelation is fits so well that it's not here that absolute conviction that it is to become more divine and that somehow the divine is going to take care of us. But now, now we turn the corner. At the end of the day, what's all the ruling for? The end of the day, what's all the know-how and the crafting for? The end of the day, we want to render what's due to people. But, but what is human life most ultimately about? What is ultimately, in some sense, due? What do we do ultimately together that is going to be the fulfillment of life? That's going to be that highest peace that's the keystone that makes it all understandable and truly that dominant note that makes the whole thing be a beautiful harmony. I referred to it already earlier, and this is what brings it together. That reason is not ultimately about ruling. All of the ruling and ordering, all of the crafting, all of the know-how, all of the making is for one end that we might see, that we might see together, and in that vision, live. Socrates saw this. He really did. I'm going to quotation number 10, our last one from the Republic, and then we're going to go to this astounding one from the symposium. You won't be able to follow me any longer, Glaucon, even, there, even though there is no lack of eagerness on my part to lead you, for you would no longer be seeing an image of what we're describing, but the truth itself. At any rate, that's how it seems to me, that it is really so is not worth insisting on any further, but that there is some such thing to be seen. That is something we must insist on. I, I just find this so astounding, this, 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 the, the drama of sort of seeing, seeing enough to know that there is something worth seeing, though you're not seeing it in the way that you know will be the completion, that your whole being is yearning to do. You know, we must insist upon this. There's some such thing to be seen. And others might look upon this man and say, you're mad. You're crazy. You're gullible. You've been deceived. You're wasting your time. How do you prove that there's something worth seeing? This last quotation, number 11. You need to know that the symposium dialogue is a very difficult dialogue. It's about love. This is the epicenter of it, which will be apparent to you in a moment. So fasten your seatbelt. There's a woman who shows up on the scene, and she, very rare situation in the dialogues, she gives these words to Socrates. She is presenting the higher wisdom, lady wisdom, as it were. Socrates himself does not purport to say these words. It's presented as said to him. Try to pay attention to me, she said, as best you can. You see, the man who has been thus far educated 
in matters of love, pause, education, formation of the whole person. You might say the whole point of education is to teach you to love. It's always ultimately about love. Can you learn to love well? How do you form people to love? As man who has been thus far educated in matters of love, who has beheld beautiful things in the right order and correctly, this is a man of restraint. This is a man of the virtues. This is a man of moderation. This isn't a man of leering eyes. This is a man who has learned with discipline how you work to see higher things that you can't just run out and grab. Is coming now to the goal of all loving, getting close. All of a sudden, he will catch sight of something wonderfully beautiful in its nature. That, Socrates, is the reason for all his earlier labors. First, it always is, neither comes to be nor passes away, neither waxes nor wanes. Second, it's not beautiful this way and ugly that way, nor beautiful at one time and ugly at another, nor beautiful in relation to one thing and ugly in relation to another, nor is it beautiful here but ugly there, as it would be if it were beautiful for some people and ugly for others. Nor will the beautiful appear to him in the guise of a face or hands or anything else that belongs to the body. Will not appear to him as one idea or one kind of knowledge. It's not anywhere in another thing as in an animal or in earth or in heaven or in anything else, but itself by itself with itself. It is always one in form in all other beautiful things share in that. And there is life, Socrates, my friend, said the woman from Montanea. There, if anywhere, should a person live his life beholding that beauty. If you once see that, it won't occur to you to measure beauty by gold or clothing or beautiful boys and youths. But how would it be in our view, she said, if someone got to see beautiful itself, absolute, pure, unmixed, not polluted by human flesh or colors or any other great nonsense of mortality, but if you could see the divine beauty itself in its one form, she will end with a question. Do you think it would be a poor life for a human being to look there and to behold it by that which he ought and to be with it. What more can a philosopher say? What more is there to say? He's come to the end. Christianity is the fulfillment, the perfection, the elevation, the pinnacle of course it is. It was all one plan from the start. The supernatural was not there to be seen by this particular man that we're reading about right now. But for you and me, ladies and gentlemen, for you and me, things, <laughs> things that in, don't contradict a word, I don't think, of the paragraphs that we just read out loud together. I mean, when he says it's not in the guise of a face or hands or anything else that belongs to the body, we're not going to fault him 
for for how could it be in a face from the viewpoint of natural reason but wait there is a face so socrates was wrong in as much as he couldn't see that supernatural grace gives everything that we've talked about today deeper roots and greater fruits all the crafting just takes on more importance every know-how every little part of life has more importance because at the end there is one thing that all that crafting is about that every one of us was designed for by a completely gratuitous gift of god you might gaze upon the beautiful itself and be with it forever well thank you um that's what i have for you from plato and uh maybe uh peter should we uh, take a quick moment and uh i'm i'm open to in any discussion Absolutely. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Cutterback. I just want to pause for You're a few welcome. seconds and, and let, Thank it, you. let it sink in and sit there for a little bit. I, I really, you know, you could maybe describe for folks who want to get a little bit more of this, but uh, you, you titled your blog Life Craft oh. and that image of crafting that you came back to so many times in this series and in, in, you know, the broader theme of your talking about these themes in, in uh, you know, other areas of your work, it seems so, well, it's clearly very present in Plato, right? That, that image yeah. of crafting, but it's so appropriate for this day and age, the society we live in, it hasn't, it, you know, people are getting into artisanal, there's a movement towards, you know, handcraft. It's, we, we recognize there's something about that, just that image of crafting, and to yeah, connect yeah, that yeah, to life yeah. at large is just so beautiful. Well, th th thank you, Peter. And I, I, I thank you for asking me to give this lecture because honestly, it's, it, I just, it, every time I come back to it, it's just little, little teeny step by step, things just fit together more. They just hmm. fit together more. And that notion of, of, of the crafting and how the hierarchy of crafting fits with that, which is beyond crafting. It's, it's in his writing. It's he he saw this. And 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 you just keep reading it and you keep reading it and you keep reading it. And then and then and then it's right there. once you see it, you can't miss it anymore. But anyway, thank you. Yeah, it's great. Uh let's get some questions rolling in here. Doctor, this one, I really like this one because it's it's apropos also of Ray's question from from before we started good, tonight. Goody, goody, goody. Um, that was a good one. Just kind of to wrap it all up. So do you think that as we see more of the beauty and try to put harmony into our lives, that we will feel or be aware of the disharmony even more in the process? Yeah, that's that, you know, and of course that immediately brings to, to mind the, the the simple thing that that but enigmatic thing that uh, Socrates says about listening to, to truly beautiful music. He says, when the soul has been formed, listening to truly beautiful music, says, e e then disordered things will tend to strike you as discordant. And he literally says, you'll notice when something is out of place. We need to start to get used to, to, to as we get wiser with him, this phrase, when something's out of place, means something more to us. It, 
all of us understand what those words mean, but 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 but, but what you know it, it, examples, what ways that things are out of place. I mean, you you just start to see maybe in the interactions with people like that. Uh, no, that you know that that word that word was out of place. There's this mm, you you don't say that to somebody, or you don't say that in this context, right? I mean, there's just there's so many there's so much richness. Some isn't about scrupulosity. It's about the you know the the, the greater richness. So the, the, there's no doubt. Um, it's always the one who understands truth better, who really understands error better. But it's only one who really sees the good, who will understand what evil is. Evil men understand evil very little. Good men understand evil because they see it for what it is. So, so you um, did, did and I, I just went off on such a, I, did I answer the question, Peter? I, I think so. Yeah. At the beginning, I, I, yeah. I, I, Absolutely. I, okay, <laughs> good. I, I trust you. All right. Awesome. Uh, Travis here on screen. Go ahead. Thank you, doctor, for a, a wonderful lecture. So the, the last paragraph there from the symposium sounds to me an awful lot like a description of the beatific vision. Did anybody like uh, Augustine or Aquinas pick up on that? And I, to me, this is the closest you can come to describing the beatific vision without uh, with the just pure light of natural reason without revelation. Is that is that yeah. a fair takeaway? I absolutely do think so. And here's the thing. I don't think that either one of them saw this text. Um, you know, Augustine was expo exposed to a lot of Platonism, but only so much of Plato himself. And uh, and uh, many also Platonic dialogues had that had been lost, like much of Aristotle. Um, uh, there's a, I, I, I can't reel off for you exactly which, but I think most of the major dialogues of Plato, St. Thomas did not read. All right. So I, otherwise, I have confidence that we would have um gotten you know how how could he have resisted quoting that but but i i absolutely this is this is one of the great texts and i mean and the other is aristotle's nicomachean ethics in book 10 that just so much speaks of it's 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 seeing the divine seeing seeing is to be present seeing is a way of being is a way of being most alive and, and and so it's it it it's again this is at the center of, of of the Christian understanding in vision all these other things kind of drop away vision is life being vision is a way of being together so it, beatific of course comes the Latin for that which makes happy that a vision beatifies naturally speaking that's exactly exactly what Plato just said the vision that 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 makes happy that beatifies so yes thank you Travis. Uh, this this one from uh, Bradley writing in here, he asks, uh, you've clearly defined these different types of wisdom. Could you please differentiate for our better understanding uh, between those four, maybe by a short definition or something, wisdom, prudence, uh, and and discernment, he adds in here, if you could maybe distinguish those, those three things. Uh, okay, so um, wisdom is always to see something by its causes. Um, the Aristotle, great line from Aristotle, it is the place of the wise man 
to to order, to see order and to give order. So so we divide the seeing of order and giving of order into practical, where is 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 more the giving, right? This is more the giving of order. It's putting order into human action. So practical wisdom is a know-how of putting order into human actions. Speculative wisdom is simply the habit of being able to see the most ultimate order. Now, it could, there's a little bit of overlap here where when you see that wisdom, metaphysics, naturally speaking, is able to judge other sciences and it's able to put a certain order into the sciences, but that's not the same thing as like putting order into human actions and putting order into matter. So that was the fundamental distinction you're asking about. Uh, discernment, so many other words of, of kind of cognition that can, can overlap. So, I mean, discernment, uh, that, that was one of the words that was in, in there. I, I mean, there's a speculative discernment. We try to be discerning to kind of see more simply what's there. Or you can say the carpenter is trying to be discerning to see more clearly. So discerning, I think, is a very, is a very broad trying to come to a clearer understanding which understanding could be practically oriented or could be speculatively oriented? Peter, was there another word that I was supposed to try to define or did I get them? Well, prudence in there. But so I think prud prudence is nothing wisdom. but another name for practical wisdom, meaning, it, it, but in, 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 in the rich tradition, so it's a, it's a habit uh, perfection of your intellect in its practicality, putting order into human actions. But um, it also, it required a beautiful thing about prudence and the complex thing is it requires that there be a transformation of your appetite also, because you won't reliably be able to see and order your actions in prudence or practical wisdom unless you have the moral virtues um, also. So that goes to the interconnection of these virtues, but prudence is another name for practical wisdom. Nice, thank you. This question from Norman then, uh, trying to drill down on justice a little bit, he asks, does the virtuous individual decide justice on his own, or does he have to defer to uh, a greater society at large? Well, that's um, there's a couple really quick distinctions. I mean, there certainly is a natural standard, and there's a natural standard written into what we are. There's a natural standard in the natural law. So, I mean, ultimately, first of all, just to be clear, I'm not sure if this is what the questioner was, was interested in or not, the, our, our, our minds has to be in, in justice, you first have to conform your minds to reality and certain natural standards of justice of what is due to people so as to then be able to render what is due in, in a kind of objective way. Now, there is many important aspects of justice that are kind of mediated through society. In other words, natural justice demands that there be a political society where certain things are enshrined in law, then certain things need to be enshrined in law that were not determined by natural law, but need to be determined by a human authority. So we do, in the exercise of our justice, we are dependent, maybe this is what the question was going after, we are dependent upon the laws of society because there are certain things that are not specified by natural law and thus have to be lived according to the customs and the determinations that are made in society. You as the individual are, are gonna have to come to see that. We're gonna have to be formed. Not how Socrates talked about how in society or the way that society grows 
in in kind of grows not in the sense of size, grows in the sense of forming people well is to g- give that mind, form people according to the natural law slash the natural law as is in the laws of that society and have that become a part of them. This raises very difficult questions, uh, perennial questions for what about when in a society that has some bad laws? Well, okay, this is always going to be the case, and you're going to have to deal with that, and sometimes you're going to have to be prepared to go against that, but you don't go against that unless it's serious, and you have to be able to sort that out. So that there are a lot in that good question. Yeah, thank you. This uh, this question comes in from Rebecca. She asks, if you're not currently working on virtues and integrating them by name, by name intentionally, how do you start to really live them uh, to round out the seeing that you know is there? Yeah, I think it's a you know a question of fundamentally how to get started. So you hear some some series yeah. like this, and you 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 know there's something to see, but if you aren't seeing you know the different parts and addressing them uh, intentionally one by yeah. one, how do you how do you really get started in living them? Well, I, I I think that is the way to get started though is to is to try to to focus on on, on them on them individually. May I make this? I'd meant to make this as a practical suggestion. Twenty seconds. Why don't we all, in in, in, in moved by what Socrates has said here, say, what can we do to take the moral life more seriously? What can we do to take the contemplative life more seriously? What, what can we particularly as Christians? So remember, part of the, the what we get when we're baptized is infused virtues. But we but we need to we need to be praying for the grace to activate them and choosing to do so. We're actually infused in us, says St. Thomas, are, are supernatural versions of the cardinal virtues. So for us, in trying to grow them, to be making this very much of a spiritual project, this should be very our Lord-centered. Lord, help me to be more courageous. Lord, help me to be um, more chaste slash temperate. And, and focus on these things and be praying for and looking at the wisdom of the church, particular ways that we cultivate these things. So it, it, it makes sense to choose particular individual ones that we work on. This is a f- classic thing for a Lenten practice. We can do this as an Advent practice, choose a particular virtue that we're going to be going to be working on. So, I mean, I mean, that that's go to the wisdom of the saints, go to the wisdom of the church on how to grow in virtue by the graces of the sacraments. That's great. Thank you. Let's uh, let's in here with Teresa up on screen. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, I was really struck kind of along the lines of Travis's question um, by like John's um, mentioning, like we shall see him as we, as he is, uh, but also by today's gospel of the blind man asking, let me see again. Would it be in the scope to kind of interpret that prayer as this kind of let me see things as they truly are? You know, like previously, I would have just assumed, oh, he can't see, so he's asking to see. But could could that kind of become a prayer when you're talking about the contemplative side of things of asking the Lord that I might see it in a deeper way? Amen. I mean, Teresa, I say we, we open with a prayer. Lord, speak to us. Show us what we should work on, and here in a, <laughs> a beautiful kind of way. The very words that we're saying, or are, are, are kind of speak to that very prayer. I almost want to say, 
I think a case can be made that the foundational prayer is ut videam, Lord, that I might see. And, and, and there's blindness and there's blindness. And we were made for vision. So, so it's always a matter of the scales. Lord, help me to do what it takes. For some reason, Teresa and all, in God's great providence, it's a very slow progress, very slow process. But, but it, it's, it's not that he doesn't want, I mean, surely it's that he wants it to go deep for whatever reason. God's, God's plan. Why is it, it takes a whole season to grow a vegetable? Why is it, it takes years to grow fruit? Why does it take so many years to come to see? Clearly, it's worth the wait. And we ask that you might receive, seek that you might find, and knock, and it will be opened unto you. We, we ask it to see in all the different areas. And this is, and then it's like, is that not when we come to the, to the gates of heaven? Lord, now, finally, may I? So, so it's, that's always the dynamic. Absolutely. That is life because life ultimately is seeing. It's, it is that rich. I say, I say yes and double yes. Amen. Thank you. That's, uh, well, we'll go out on that one. Um, but before we end tonight, before I ask you to close us in prayer, Dr., I, I mentioned your, your blog, um, Lifecraft, just before we jumped into the Q&A session here. But obviously, we look forward to having you back at the ICC. So if you all want some more of Dr. Cutterback, you know, stick around. He'll, he'll be back. But uh, in the meantime, uh, you're, you're pumping out great content over there. What, what, if people want to, you. you know, get a little bit more, what could they expect? Well, I mean, a number of fun things along these lines. I'm just always constantly, thanks for asking, Peter. It's very kind of you. I'm always just asking myself, what, what kind of content might help people in the trenches of trying to craft a good life, right? Particular problems, I'm especially thinking of households, I'm especially thinking of friendship, um, you know, problems in the profession. I'm now making a lot of videos. Uh, so I've got a little YouTube channel just weekly putting out more, more things and, you know, relationships in the home and, 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 and just kind of fundamental themes, very often using Plato and, and Aristotle. So, um, Come, I mean, there's for people want to go deeper. There's full courses in man of the household, woman of the household, which I really think if you're if you're up for that, um, people have really, 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 really uh, appreciated it, and I'd love to get more involved. And and I'm expanding those too. So thanks for asking. Thank you, Doctor. This was uh, really, really wonderful. So could My uh, could you close us in prayer this evening? Absolutely. We Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we place ourselves in your presence. We raise our hearts to you in gratitude. We thank you for how you have opened our eyes, and we pray that you might open them all the more. Help us to be the instruments of you in opening the eyes of others. Lord, help us to see Help us to help others to see. Give us patience. Give us the virtues. Help us to live in faith that our faith itself will one day give way to vision. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.